Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that this may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them, because the people... For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. We'll stop right there and we'll ask the Lord for help. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our portion again on the first day of the week, Sunday. We're here together with our Bibles open. And Lord, nothing will take place of any benefit unless you teach us. Lord, unless we're students with open eyes and open ears, Lord, may we receive this with gladness and may it do its work of change. As we say so many times, it's been said in Scripture to be less like ourselves and to be more like you. And then, Lord, when you fill us up, would you allow us to be emptied for the sake of others and all for your kingdom? We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, there's a couple of words, well, more than a a few, actually. Sometimes I think the best way to go at certain passages of Scripture is just to start identifying words, maybe underline or circle them, then define them, and then we can get our heads around what is being said. The first thing to do is to understand it. it. It's hard to fix a problem. It's hard to learn a new skill It's hard to uh, get from point A to point B unless you understand where you are and where you need to go. What's wrong? What needs to be fixed? Uh, What you don't know in order that you can be useful if you do know something. So what we'll do is work through the first number of verses. Then we kind of get to the point. And then before we finish, we'll try to see how this fits us. If, if, If this is what we understand, okay, then how do we obey it? So if you look back at verse 13, I'll I'll try to emphasize certain words, and then we'll work our way through them. First two verses set the stage for the next uh, act or development in this this narrative we're looking at. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, that's a key word. What what do they mean by boldness? And perceive, this is the council, the, the Sadducees, that they were uneducated and common men. What do they mean by that? Uh, That they were astonished as a result of the incongruity of of boldness coming from uneducated and common men and then recognizing that they had been with Jesus. 
I'm sure a, a, a full month of Sunday's worth of preaching could be condensed out of that one word. What is it like to be recognized as having been with Jesus? Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them. And we talked about that last week. Where's the guy that was healed? Well, it sounds like he was thrown in the clink as well. And now he's standing there at the hearing with Peter and John. But seeing the lame man standing is incontrovertible evidence that they have nothing to say in opposition. So let's define these terms. Boldness. When's the last time you used the word? I haven't used it in a while. It's not one that I use a lot. I hear it more than I say it. Maybe read it. Most of it, maybe you would agree, comes in the format of commercials on TV regarding food. Bold new flavors. To convince you to get out of your house and in their drive-thru. It's a trick, though. There's nothing bold about it. For the most part. It's the reason why they're using a word like bold. To act like their spices are better than other spices. Or the ones that you can purchase and put on your own food. This is not that. This boldness has to do not only with their poise. Their command of the material. But their confidence in the truth of what is being said. And they're having been around the block with Jesus. This isn't their first rodeo, though it may be their first speaking point, at least for Peter, actually his second. But as far as the common and uneducated, and we'll say more about boldness uh, as we move forward, but to say that they're common and uneducated, this is the council referring to them, it isn't to suggest that Peter and John were illiterate, that they didn't have any education. It meant that they were not trained in rabbinic theology. They, They weren't they're equal. They're saying that um, these are not uh, our peers as far as uh, the, the, the study of, of what is being said, theological content. And if you want to boil it down further, if it doesn't mean anything else, it means at least that the rulers were shocked at the professional class of these they considered to be amateurs. They shouldn't have known how to handle themselves the way they did. That's the point that is being made. I don't know if you have seen a particular uh, viral video. It's been a while, and there are others like them. But this one had to do with a homeless man who was filmed after having uh, sat down behind a piano on a street somewhere. And he began to play, and people began to stop and listen and watch and and get their phones out and start to record. And they were amazed at this. It's like five million views or something. People share stuff like that. The reason why there's amazement is because of the incongruity of what they're seeing and what they're hearing. They wouldn't expect a man who's homeless to be able to know how to play the piano this way. And if he's able to play the piano this way, then surely there's some story to account for the fact that he doesn't look like we would expect him to look like with that type of skill set. Turns out he was a a Marine, I believe. And it was a long story. And that type of amazement usually results in, I don't know, um, 
five million views, maybe a late night spot on one of the television shows, maybe a record deal, a makeover. This is not that type of astonishment. This type of astonishment in this setting is we've got a problem on our hands. They're showing us up. We should have what they have. We don't, they do. So this type of astonishment is met with fear. And their conclusion was an acknowledgement that these men had been with Jesus. And that's really where Luke gives away the, the source of their fear here. Because this wasn't the first time these men had been showed up like that. It wasn't the first time that they had been exposed for who they are. It wasn't the first time uh, the rug of their self-serving, hypocritical, presumptuous theology had been pulled out from under them. On occasions like, I don't know, the temple being cleared and all the money changers run out of there. Or way back when the guy was just a kid. How does he know this stuff? And then when the people start saying, hey, he speaks with authority and not like the scribes. And now what they're doing is they're witnessing the same boldness that they thought they had just killed and buried. But it's back. And it reminds them of this other guy who wasn't a fisherman like these guys. He was a carpenter. Again, without rabbinic theological training, but they're running laps around him. They have the truth, and the truth speaks for itself. So they had nothing to say, is what the verse tells us, especially because the man who was healed is standing there. Everyone knew that the man had been crippled all his life, standing there in front of them, and middle-aged at that. I, I don't know if you noticed there at the end of the passage. It's kind of tacked on to the, to the end of the paragraph. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. What difference does that make? I'm more than 40 years old. I wasn't when I got here, but I'm 40-something since. What that means is a way for a physician who's writing to say that there are certain physical maladies that you can actually grow out of. Um, peanut allergy comes to mind, hoping that one of ours grows out of that. And there's certain developmental things that you can, in time, overcome. This guy was 40. He was stuck that way. It's basically what he's saying. He's not going to grow out of it. And everybody knew he was that way since he was born, but now he's standing on his feet. So it's incontrovertible evidence. They could have said anything they wanted to about what happened, but they were not about to since everyone was talking about it. Would you not agree that it's, it's hard in an official capacity to say that something is not when everybody else is saying it is? But we're all kind of intrigued, if not flabbergasted, at officials Ability to say something's not when everybody knows that it is. But that's the place where they're at. They could not deny it, but they would not acknowledge it. That's a pickle if there ever was one. Baseball's not my sport, but I understand a pickle. I watch the Sandlot. I think it's called a rundown. But you're stuck between bases. 
and the baseman can throw the ball faster than you can run. So you're probably going to be out, but not without a fight, right? These guys are in a pickle because they have decided that Jesus couldn't be allowed to do what he did, and neither can these men, but they don't know at this point what to do about it. Like Jesus, these men have to be stopped. Now, what they're going to do, though embarrassing, is go behind closed doors and confer in privacy. And I thought it was worth the side note right here to address what some critics like to have a party with. How does Luke know what was said behind closed doors that Peter and John were not allowed to hear? And the embarrassing nature of what was said is likely that they're not going to repeat it. So how are we reading something that was off the record? Well, we've got options. Saul of Tarsus could have very well been part of the council. He was a Hebrew among Hebrews, a Pharisee among Pharisees. This is the Sanhedrin here. Pharisees are in the minority, but it's possible that he could have been there. But more possible than that would be Gamaliel, which Paul would spend a, a, an amount of time with, along with Luke, who wrote this. That and most stuff behind closed doors eventually comes out anyway. Uh, so it's really not that big a deal. And I thought worth mentioning. Look at verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, so be dismissed, we'll be back. We're going to deliberate. They conferred with one another, saying, What should we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident. To all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. A gag order. But notice how they're reluctant to even pronounce the name of Jesus. This name that they don't speak of. Well, because that name is blood on their hands, for one thing. Look at verse 18. So they called them and charged them. So charged is the formal charge. And uh, that'll be there later for when they want to take next steps. They charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. This is Luke telling us the formal charges. But Peter and John answered them. So a charge is given... They've ended their deliberations, official charge. It's not, it's not a verdict yet because they're, they're on you know, first steps. This is, this is a warning. But Peter and John answered these charges. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So in response to the official gag order, Peter and John make this spirited reply. Look at those words there. This is, this is a notable, if not famous, passage of Scripture. All sorts of topics come up. Civil disobedience, this is where a lot of folks go. But I want you to look with your eyes in your copy of God's Word and look who's being told to figure it out. Peter and John need to figure it out. Or did the theologians need to figure it out? Those who say that they believe in God are telling 
Peter and John that what they say is more important than what God had said. Now, of course, they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And there's the rub. But I thought that brilliant. Peter says, as to whether we listen to God or we listen to you, you must judge. You figure that out. But as for us, we can't do anything other than say what we saw. We've got to tell people what we saw and what we heard. We're not making this up, and it is the truth. Inconvenient to you, though it may be. Furthermore, this is not said in his speech, but it's certainly implied. If it's right that we obey God before we obey anyone else, then your threats are useless. Because it comes from a subservient authority. Um, it'd be a good time to try to make a difference between authority versus absolute authority. We studied this in history, didn't we? The way the, the kingdoms work, that there's, there's authority and then there's absolute authority, right? And absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know how that works? Well, that's when it's in the power of humans. There is an absolute authority, and that is held by the one who created the world and all that's in it. He's the creator. We're the creation. But everything under him is delegated authority. So, yes, there's authority, and much of it in Scripture is actually explained to us as given to us by God, even those who don't believe in God. That would be governing authorities, which the New Testament authors are telling us over and over again. We're to submit to that authority. There's authority within the, the family structure as God gave it to us. There's authority as far as the church goes. But your pastor, your elders, your deacons don't have absolute authority. Uh, your mom and dad don't have absolute authority. The state of North Carolina doesn't have absolute authority. Uh, the federal government doesn't have absolute authority. It's authority, and we are supposed to obey it, says the Scripture, unless, of course, something happens which would cancel that out, and that would be, how should I word this, a breach of absolute authority by established authority. Biblical ethics, the principle may go something like this, if you want to write it down, but this is one of those things that's very easy to see, very easy to say, very easy to understand, excruciatingly difficult to live by. Because life is never cookie cutter clean. It gets complicated fast. But here it is. We are always to obey those in authority over us unless when that authority commands us to do something that God forbids or forbids us to do something that God commands. Now what the problem here is that you've got the Sanhedrin and their job is to keep the truth of God as he's given it to us. But they're telling these men to obey them rather than God. Same as if the government decides they're going to compel us to do something the Bible forbids or keep us from doing something that God commands. Uh, there's letters uh, that we could read as examples of uh, Christian schools or, or, or um, Christian companies 
that we're mandated to do certain things that because of these things we've been taught in Scripture. And it costs these companies, businesses, schools, uh, inconvenience for a while, uh, money after that, more inconvenience. It's not over. I think we get what this means. But what we've got here is, is clear language that we've got to obey God rather than man. But at the same time, it doesn't give us license to be disobedient whenever we happen to disagree with established authority. That's where it gets interesting, right? Well, I don't like what they're doing. This isn't the country I was born into. It's changing. True. And the Christian may disagree all day long on maybe even majority or most of certain things that happen. But until it gets to a point where we can't worship, we can't obey the Scriptures, we're forced to do things that the Scriptures condemn, then we're not given what we need in order to go there yet. Different countries, it might be different. Um, You know, the Bible, though we wish, doesn't give us the authority to protect our comfortability, our bank account. Um, When things are uncomfortable, unpopular, or inconvenient, it doesn't matter. We still have to obey. Says the guy who lived under Nero, who cut his head off, the Apostle Paul. Uh, Joseph and Mary, what are they supposed to do? Take everything they've got and go for miles in order to take a census. While great with child, it's inconvenient, yes. And question as to whether or not they would do it. So, for some, this is their favorite verse. For others, it's the verse they have locked away in their safe for use when necessary and hope they never have to use it. Look at verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, so you had the charge, then Peter says, hey, you guys have to figure out what to do with us because we're going to say what we saw. You've got to figure out whether or not we're obeying God or we're obeying you or disobeying you. When they'd further threatened them after that exchange, they let them go, finding no way to punish them, again, because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. That, that's the thing. They can't do what they want to do because these men are too popular. They've seen the miracle, and everyone's behind them. Same with Jesus. They had crowds following him for the people. They couldn't make their move. They're in the same place. But legal precedent had been set that would allow the council to take further action if necessary, and occasions for such actions will soon be multiplied over and again when we flip from chapter 4 into chapter 5, and we'll start looking into that after the new year. But for the man on whom the sign of healing was performed, he was more than 40 years old, we understood what that meant. All right, we have covered what we read in an attempt to understand it, what was going on and what it meant. Let's look at this, same thing, but with a different set of lenses on, asking ourselves, well, what's in this for me? The passage is about boldness, it's about bravery, it's about courage. 
First of all, we probably should note that it doesn't mean rudeness. These men were not rude. It doesn't mean being obnoxious. Though we can flip our TV on and see people who call themselves Christians being obnoxious a lot. It doesn't mean they're bold. It doesn't mean they're brave. It doesn't mean they're courageous. It might mean they're crazy. But that's not this. This doesn't mean being hateful. It's not hateful to say what God says. Now, it can be hateful to say what God says in a mean way, as if you're better, which you're not. Cross is required to save your soul, same as anyone else's soul. So that's not braveness or courage or boldness. It's not belligerence where you just browbeat someone until they finally say uncle. That's not what Peter and John are doing. And it's not bravado where I have skills of speech better than you. It's not any of those things. As far as this section of the book of Acts is concerned, and that was then and there, we're here and now. I think the same thing that worked for these men worked for us. That's how you get the wasness into the isness of now. It's always helpful to think of it that way. Two things. This boldness, bravery, courage, whatever you want to call it, first of all, was clear in the face of fear. Peter minced no words. He gave away no concessions. He sidestepped no issues. And anybody that was there would know exactly what was said. So clarity in the face of fear. And second of all, it's a demonstration of following Jesus whatever it costs. It costs Jesus his life. It'll cost these men their lives. Well, Peter, not John. Peter and John demonstrated both of these, and so should we. So let's look at them both. This is for us. Clarity in the face of fear. Looking back, Peter and John had plenty to be afraid of. Be afraid of these Jews. They could be afraid of Rome. They know what it did to Jesus. What would happen to their families? You know, it was a little different then. They were the breadwinners. What happened to their children? What would happen in their absence? You know, that's why we have life insurance, right? So if, if, if your pastor gets hit by a train, you know, his wife and his children have money to eat. In this case, um, there's a lot for them to be afraid of. The same thing's true with us. Say the wrong thing on the wrong social platform, you're canceled. Could be. Whether or not they'll investigate as to the context of what was said, who knows? Doubt it. There's a lot it could cost us. There's also the fact that they could have figured out a way to save face by saying something that the rulers would have been happy with without saying something that was untrue. You almost feel, as Christians today, that this is the only means of survival. To say something that will make your opponent happy without giving away the farm. That's not what Peter and John did. An example. Uh, by, in whose name and what power did you do this? Do what? This guy that's healed? Yeah, that guy that's healed. Um, in the power of the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just leave the Jesus part out. They would have been happy, and they know Jesus is God, and God is God. They haven't lied. 
but they haven't preached the gospel either. So that wouldn't be clear. It wouldn't be clarity. That'd be muddy. You know, clarity at the point of the pain line, but no further. It's not what they did. They could have left out the part about how the rulers had handed Jesus over to be crucified. That would be, you know, not mentioning the sin part of it all. That you guys need Jesus' forgiveness because you with sinful hands are the reason why he's dead. Not just because you and the Romans and the cross. And the, no, because of sin. He came here to forgive our sins. Good guys and bad guys. We're all bad guys. There are no good guys on the planet. That's why Jesus came. They could leave that part out. Wouldn't get them in trouble, but it wouldn't be clarity. And they wouldn't have preached the gospel. So they have to do both. And if you want... To, to, to take a peek at uh, you know, Luke's irony that he builds into the story, just compare the clarity of Peter and John to the rulers in the episode. Peter answered everything that was asked. And then it was time for them to have their discussion. Well, we'll be back in a minute. I'm going to go back here and shut the door. And we're going to figure out how to save our own noses, our faces. Is it, this is what they're afraid of. They're looking at clarity that they should possess, but they're riddled with their own fear of saving their own positions and that what they have may slip through their fingers. So they're not clear at all. And what we learn out of this passage, the same for them is the same for us. There will be fear. You're not going to get through this life without fear. As a parent, you're not going to get through Christianity without worrying what will happen to your kids and when to shelter them and when to show them the ugliness of the lie and let them be familiar with it as to the counterfeit. We don't do this. This is why we don't do this. There's a lot of fear. There's the fear that they may decide of their own free will that God gave them to leave you, the church, and everything that's good for them and never come back. There's a whole lot of fear. But with God's help, as he helped these men, we can be winsomely clear, refreshingly clear, even clear such that those who heard it when it was our end, they'll at least know that somebody told the truth. All right, that's clarity in the face of fear. Let's look at following Jesus, whatever it cost. Fear's one thing, costs are another, they're related. Neither of them are, are a good thing. The apostles were told to do something they could not do. In this case, it wasn't something they had to think over. They'd already figured that out before it happened. They didn't see it as their problem at all. That's why they told the council to figure out for themselves, because there's just no way they're going to be keeping quiet, regardless of what it costs. Now, that was them as far as us. Some of us still go to school. Others of us go to work. Many of us live in neighborhoods with lots of people. And if any one of us say that we're not ashamed, that's one thing. But in our heads, we know what that feels like. In many ways, we are ashamed. You know, where the uh, 
disciples could have just decided to leave the Jesus part out. That's practically what most of us do. We just leave that part out. We can be good neighbors without talking about that. We can be greater and better employees, probably. Just, we'll just leave that out. We'll talk about that at church when we get there and around people we go to church with. But as far as bringing that up these days, you can lose a finger or your head. You can thicken the air in the room so bad nobody wants to talk about anything at all. So we just leave it out, practically, because we're ashamed. And that's natural. Because we're lost and we need Jesus. And if we're going to be bold and clear, it's going to be because he gave it to us. And there's only one way we'll be able to get it. It's the same way that the disciples got it. They had been with Jesus. And if you're not with Jesus, you'll be roadkill. I don't know how else to describe it. But this is how it's prescribed here. What did the council say was the reason for their boldness? They'd been with Jesus. Where else do they get it? We haven't been with Jesus. That's why we don't. They hadn't figured that out yet, but they're getting closer. How do we fix our problems, especially when clarity is at at risk in the face of fear? Following Jesus is beginning to accumulate its costs. We spend time with Jesus. Notice the mistake that these guys had made. Not Peter and John, but the whole council. They spoke of these men as having been with Jesus in the past tense. What was the truth? Are they still with Jesus or is Jesus in them? Yeah. They got it dreadfully wrong. They're acting like this boldness they're looking at is kind of the leftovers from having been in proximity to this guy that did it before. That ain't it at all. It's coming from Jesus through these guys, through what happened on the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit was given to them. Now it's not just these men, it's God through these men. And it's the only way that the gospel is ever heard. Why we would ever risk ourselves in order to preach the name of Jesus. What was given to them was given to them on the spot. A righteous bailout. Many of us who've been Christians for a certain amount of time know what it's like when we get one, where someone has a question and and we surprise ourselves at the answer we give. Out of Scripture, it's been a while since we've read, and we praise the Lord for it because it's all Him and none of us. Now, if we're spending time with Jesus, if Jesus lives within us, How did Jesus handle his troubles? Because Jesus had previously been through all that these men had been through. It was his turn. Now it's their turn. He told them this would happen. What did Jesus do whenever he was facing a critical moment? He got alone and he prayed, or he took some of his men with him. Garden of Gethsemane, right before he gave himself up to arrest, he was praying. Great drops of blood, Luke tells us. That'd be a good thing for us to do ourselves. Spend time with Jesus and pray a lot. That's how we'll have boldness, clarity, the face of fear, and the ability to follow Jesus no matter what it costs. And if we look at John 17 as the model of Jesus' prayer life, that's a fascinating chapter. 
What you have in John 17 is Jesus praying to the Father and we get to sit in and listen. That's an inter-Trinitarian conversation between God the Father and the Son. And we get to hear it. And what is he praying for? You. He says, I pray for these men. And I pray for those that will believe because of their witness. That's us. And what he's praying for is not healing of crippled legs, but the healing of crippled spirits, broken spirits, rebellious against God, dead in their trespasses and sins. But through Jesus, he's going to save them and make them new creations, adopt them into his family and give them eternal life. That's what he's praying for. So if we're afraid of the way our culture's changing around us, no one with their eyes open would deny that we haven't drifted quite a bit in a very short time. And if we feel as though we must adjust course to regain our voice, because that's the pressure we're feeling on all sides. Look, you need to ease up on that if you expect to have any credence in any conversations. You don't want to be on the wrong side of anything. It all changes, and it must adapt. When what we're told is this is the same today, yesterday, forever. We feel that pressure. Fear is not absent. I think one of the most beautiful pictures in this painting here is that Peter and John, these apostles... We're standing there with a crippled man who just a day earlier had been lame. And I don't know about you, but that would have been quite the prize that day. I don't know if you've taught Sunday school classes or, or you've witnessed at school or you've ever... You know, this is kind of uh, what your pastoral staff does for a living but I'd love the privilege whenever possible to preach like Peter and John by standing shoulder to shoulder with a healed man or woman, someone who was dead spiritually. Now they're alive, and the light on their face is unlike the sun, the moon, or the stars. It's the light of the world. They're alive forever. They were dead. They were blind. Now they can see. They were lame. Now they can walk. And that's what this church or any Preaching ministry needs is people's lives that have been changed by the grace of God. And you know what the world will have to say about that? Nothing. They can't say anything about that. They can lock us up. They can tell us to shut up. But they can't do anything about it because it speaks for itself from the throne room of heaven. So, folks, that's what Fuqua Verena needs out of Wake Chapel is a demonstration of healed people. And the healed people will give the preachers and the teachers the courage to say the truth. Clearly, no matter who's listening, and without counting the costs, as if this is the best thing to throw our lives away on, knowing that the exchange rate in heaven is beyond our wildest imagination. So folks, we need you here. And folks at home, we need you here. 
there's no such thing as a riskless life. You, you, you risk getting in the car. Uh, you risk your life eating food, especially if you didn't make it at home. The stuff they put into that is designed to kill us real slow. There's risk in breathing the air. Uh, when you walk into a room, they've always been full of germs. Some of them are more dangerous than others. But at the end of the day, we weren't put here on this planet to just survive as long as we can on a calendar. We were put on this planet to tell the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the way to do it courageously is to spend time with Jesus and to spend time with each other. Look in each other's eyes and faces hear the sound of our voices, encourage one another after we've been beat up all week long, and then come together and pray together. Pour your heart out to the Lord. As, as goofy and as weird as that feels when it's your turn at the table to say, Jesus, help us, we got to do it. Or we won't be numbered with Peter's and John's. We'll be numbered with that group of people who with the fancy robes have nothing to say, who are jokes protect themselves in their positions, die a miserable death, and then account for it in eternity. So this is a great passage. That wasness got right up in our isness, didn't it? <laughs> well, let's ask the Lord to bless it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you give us boldness would you prick our hearts even now for what we'll learn next week where after these men go home to their families having been warned they get together and they pray not that you will take away the pressure or relieve the pain or burn the traffic ticket Lord they just pray that you'll give them boldness to say the very same things that got them into trouble because it's life or death. Lord, would you give us a heart to take serious our calling as the church, to position ourselves for another year as we sit and learn about your coming through the holiday season. But Lord, be pleased to change the world, at least a small corner of it, through the people that are called by your name. We thank you for your word. May it do its work of change as it gets its witness. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.